Monday, October 29th, 2018. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 182 of the 5049 podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? Thanks for joining us uh, for another conversation. Today, a conversation between myself and a person who does a lot of listening, thinking, and writing about music. Today on the show, it's me and Clifford Allen. Do you guys know Clifford Allen? I think you. Uh, he, he, I think he exists for certain somewhere in your consciousness. He has done uh, a, a tremendous amount of reviews and, and liner notes uh, about many different strains of jazz and improvised music, and uh, I'm glad to have him on the show today. Today on the show, Clifford Allen. Before we get into it, um, a couple of things, a couple of things. Uh, this Wednesday, this Wednesday, I haven't performed in Europe in, uh, in quite a while. I'm playing this Wednesday in Paris, France at L'Event Célève. I'm playing solo on Halloween. For a number of reasons, this is a big deal to me. I've never really spent any time in France. Halloween is important to me. And uh, in the last year, I feel like create, creatively, uh, my solo playing has, has hit another level. I did a tour this past summer, uh, and really a lot of things became solidified. I feel more confident in my solo performance than I ever have before. And uh, as far as solo performances go, I started doing them back in 2005 or so. And it's been a very important part of my output, um, and I feel better about it than I ever have. I put out this record uh, just a couple of months ago, my, which is a solo record called Decay of the Angel. And uh, I don't play solo that often, and like I said uh, a moment ago, I don't get to Europe very often. So this is a big deal to me. If you are in or around Paris, come out this Wednesday, October 31st at Le Vent Célève. I'm probably mispronouncing that. I'll be playing solo along, uh, along on the bill is Ensemble Economique. It's going to be good. I also want to say thanks to, to people who have signed up and continue to pledge on Patreon. It, it, honestly, it means the world to me. And it helps me out quite a lot. It helps the show out quite a lot, honestly. So if you've been doing that, thank you. I don't think I say thank you enough. And and I'm going to uh, be putting some stuff, uh, making some stuff available to Patreon donors soon as, as sort of a thank you. Um, and if you're not already a donor, it, once you become a donor, you will have instant access to the entire archive of the podcast, which at this point is you know, 80-something episodes of talk. Uh, conversations with Fred Frith, Craig Taborn, um, Zena Parkins, Jim Thurwell, Trevor Dunn, a lot of really remarkable musicians. So, so do that. All right, today on the show, Clifford Allen. I met Clifford years ago. Um, he, you know, I, I'm sure I, I initially met him because I probably submitted uh, something to him, some of my own music for, for consideration, for review. Um, and over the years, you know, I don't mean to sound like a dick or, or, or condescending in any way, but Clifford's one of the good ones. Uh, I'll, I'll just say that, you know. Within the, the realm of people that write about music, um, 
you know, there, there's a there's there's a couple of dudes. You know, there's Lars Gottrich, there's Hank Steamer, uh, there, there's you know a handful of dudes who I feel as a as a person who who makes music and puts it out there, and a person who who listens to a lot of music and is in relationships with a lot of people who make music. You know, these are the guys who get us. There's more, but the, you know, the, those I, I mentioned those three specifically um, because I feel like you know, similar to Lars and Hank. Clifford definitely has a handle on lots of different music, uh, whether that's you know extreme noise, metal, improvised music, straight up classic jazz, and you know, to me as as a person who you know it loves jazz music, there's always been something kind of cool and romantic about the the serious jazz collector and and critic. It's just it's cool. Maybe you know it's because I'm a big Harvey P. Carr fan that 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 seed was planted. Um, but to be one of those guys, I feel, and, and hopefully this is usually the case, it certainly is with Clifford, you have to have a rather encyclopedic knowledge. You, you can't sit down to write a review uh, and that review just exists within a bubble. It don't work that way. If you're talking about you know a, a music like jazz or improvised music uh, specifically, you really need to know how all the pieces line up and connect. And, and I think Clifford does. And part of his um, uh, output more recently has been getting involved with uh, doing liner notes for records and helping put together reissues of records that uh, if if those reissues hadn't occurred, th those records would likely be lost, um, lost in time. The music that you just heard at the top of the show uh, and all the music that we'll be playing on the show today uh, is from a record by Michael Cosmic called Peace in the World. This was reissued recently on the Now Again record label. And like I said, Clifford had a lot to do with that reissue. The record itself, Peace in the World, uh, features Phil Musra, Hussein Ertuk, John Jamil Jones, Leonard Brown, and Eric Jackson. It was recorded in 1974. Totally classic and, you know, for a long time, overlooked piece of, uh, of, of free music, free jazz history. Great shit. If you want to find out more about the, the, that reissue and get your hands on it, go to nowagainrecords.com. Egon, that's his label. Y'all know Egon? I might have to get Ego on here. That might be kind of interesting. Uh, he, he, he's a cat. It's his label. Check it out. Nowagainrecords.com. Uh, and that's it. Hope you guys are all doing well. Here's my conversation with Clifford Allen. <laughs> So I remember there was once I've talked about this before but uh, one summer when my brother and sister and I went to go visit my dad he bought a new VCR so we'd have something to do and he went to the video store that his friend owned and was like hey my mm -hmm. kids are coming just like give me a box I'll just buy a box of videos so the guy yeah. gave him like a huge box of like 40 sealed videos in it nice and 
I don't know how he picked the the selections out, especially when my dad was like, "This is for my fucking kids." Yeah, because Blue Velvet was in there. Yeah, um, uh, some of the uh, you remember those like softcore uh, Emmanuel films. So <laughs> how can I forget <laughs> some of those? You ask there. whether I can rem- yeah. remember them. How can I forget? Right. But then Revenge of the Nerds Part Two, Nerds in Paradise was also uh-huh. in there, and like I watched that. I I could still say every line from that movie. I watched nice. it every single day. Yeah, uh, and it's weird how like certain movies kind of grab you like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there's like such a limited supply of stuff. You right. just watch what's there. Well, and I have, I feel like you know because a lot of B movies and and C C grade horror and stuff like that. I mean, it's very hard to find. A lot of those things did not make it to DVD. Um, the straight to video right. stuff or the like the midnight movie stuff and like so, you know. A lot of original film reels are long gone, so um, they're very, very rare, and a lot of things are unseen, you know? I mean, and as a fan of recorded media, um, being an LP collector and stuff like that, I definitely appreciate, and also as an archivist by profession, um, I definitely appreciate the need to hold on to that part of culture. It's funny, I feel like, you know, like as as the world of consumed media, whether it's you know music or film or books, like as as it switches over to a digital thing, I wonder about my if my judgment system from what I grew up with is relevant. Whereas you know you said something a second ago, which was straight to VHS, which is mm-hmm. not a concept anymore. Right. It is in that like I feel like I'm judgmental of something only if it exists only on Bandcamp. Part of me is like, oh, that's like Ernest goes to camp. Like I, <laughs> I don't, <laughs> but I don't Ernest. think that's relevant anymore. You know. Uh- Vern, Vern, you know what I'm saying? Like that type of thinking yeah. of like, oh, if they didn't like go for the full production, it means that it's like some 99 cent uh, shelf stuff, right? The discount stuff. Yeah. Of course, you know when you're talking consumer, um, consumer media, uh, you know the 99 cent stuff be- can become collectible. You know, totally. I mean, like you know i when like and we can i don't we can talk about like record the whole record collecting thing because that's a big part of my life as well yeah. as being a, a writer and so forth but you know some of the budget label uh lps that were you know straight to cut out or at woolworth's uh-huh. 99 cent bin you know are four figure albums now and i mean that's not uh, not that uncommon right so. Right, 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 right. That's, but that's you know, that's you're, you're talking about the the collector value, the monetary right. value of what a collector is willing to pay for a record that had one pressing forty years ago. Yeah, 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 right, yeah, yeah. There's something I was actually looking at that, some of that stuff you sent me, and there is like looking at to me aesthetically, there's something very attractive about um, like small run artist pressing mm-hmm. like free jazz records mm-hmm. from the past 50 years where the the art and everything about it it's like black and white it's super super spare and just mm-hmm. like meat and potatoes kind yeah. of I don't, i'm not even talking about the music i'm just talking about right. the yeah 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 no it is very appealing it's always i've always found that stuff very very appealing and sort of i guess like a punk rock sort of way or something yeah um it's very underground it's you know yeah, it has a vibe. I mean, you can like you can almost, you know, smell it. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, did you grow up in Texas? No, I grew up in Kansas. Oh, really? Yeah, I Why grew up. I thought you were from like Houston or something. No, no, I grew up in Topeka, Kansas, um, and went to the University of Kansas in Lawrence. 
Um, when William Burroughs was still there? He, no, I think he, I mean. He, he, he died must, in like 96 to 97. Yeah, so he, when I was maybe a freshman. Okay. So, um, so yeah, so I was, I grew up in Topeka, Kansas, got out of Topeka, went to Missoula, Montana uh-huh. for uh, my freshman and sophomore year of college, um, and then got sort of too cold. Uh, yeah, yeah, and sure. most Most of my friends, uh in missoula had they actually like dropped out after the first year so i was kind of like i was i mean i was like lonely i was like who am i gonna talk to who am i gonna hang out with so and i got kind of burnt out on that scene pretty quick and then uh moved back to kansas and finished out at in lawrence okay so texas came much later that was uh my second graduate degree and that uh, was, was in, in austin in okay so like yeah the safe space yeah well texas. <laughs> texas is a big very diverse state it is it is it's easy to shit on texas yeah it is it's a, it's a there's a lot of ground to cover with that shit so it's huge yeah, yeah. It's huge it's massive and it's what is it like the second or third most populous state in the in the nation is it really i think so i read did you, that did you spend much time outside of austin yeah 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 you I went mean, all over. yeah i mean my folks live in houston now they moved from kansas to houston um about well gosh when was that maybe like 10 12 years ago i can't remember um went like before i went to austin um and then my wife is from outside dallas where like fort worth or no like east texas near paris texas yeah yeah speaking of great movies speaking of great movies yeah so um yeah so her parents were both professors at uh, Texas A&M University Commerce, mm-hmm. which is yeah near Paris, mm-hmm. um, and they just retired. So yeah, have you been to Texas in the last six months or so? No, um, not since Christmas. I don't okay. think. Seems kind of like an exciting time. Or that to be- the other holiday, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. It seems like sort of like an exciting time to be there right now. Uh, I did stump for Beto. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did. I did phone calls. Where did he come from? Is he going to be the next president? No. Uh, I, <laughs> No, he came from he came from out like El Paso, oh, so um, I don't I didn't really know him before recently. I yeah. mean, because we, you know, I haven't lived in Texas in um, seven eight years, something okay. like that, seven years. Um, so yeah, he was not on my radar at that time. I mean, Cruz certainly was, but yeah, well, he's a fucking animal. Well, he's the Zodiac killer. You know, I I don't not doubt that. Well, he's he would or, have to be pretty young. He's like he's yeah. not even fifty. He's no, like that's not, true. Yeah, so he's just a fucking creep. Yeah. He just like he the the blobfish. Oh, he's you know? so gross. Yeah. He's so despicable and gross. But is this guy Beto for real? He seems like he's for real. Um, you you know I I stumped for him. I read up on him. He's not perfect. He's um I think he is. I think he's a legitimate candidate. Yeah. Um. I you know, but. We could go down a certain rabbit hole with, <laughs> with respect to Democratic or the, you know, the Democratic Party. It's and such a shit show. Yeah, I, you know, it's not something I really um, necessarily. I, I got, I get bored very quickly of talking about it. Because- I'll just say this: I, I'd heard that Elizabeth Warren had released a video. And just like with like a movie, I was like, I don't want any spoiler alerts. I don't even want to know what people are saying about it. I'm just going to watch it and have my own reaction to yeah. it. And I was like, oh, my God, this is not good. I didn't see it. You didn't hear about this? Oh, it's, I probably heard about it. I didn't watch it. So 
I guess like in 2016, 2015, Donald Trump oh, this publicly sh- made this bullshit. offer of he'll give a yeah, million yeah, dollars yeah, to a charity yeah, yeah. of her choice if she could produce a DNA test saying yeah, that she's she did. Infected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she, but the video is like, it's so disingenuous and gross and like... That she put out. That she, she put out, yeah. I haven't watched it, but I have heard about it. And I, yeah, I mean, she just comes off looking like an asshole. Yeah. So, I mean... She, I was fine with her before, but now she just seems like, well, she fell for a trap. Totally. I'm, I mean, it's like the same narcissistic bullshit that she is, you know, trying to supposedly fight against. She is, you she know. She walked right into it. She walked right into it, and I think that she might, that might cook her goose. I think um, it did. So. I think it did. But, you know, I mean, there it's early yet, and I, you know, I hesitate to make any predictions um i i you know when when the time comes i mean i'll cast my vote um for For whoever's on the democratic side of the ticket yeah 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 i mean i don't know it's it's very um it's very discomforting the field that we have right now but at the same time i think you know there have been uh previous instances in which somebody has been like the golden child and everybody's you know uh, lined up behind that person, and that wasn't maybe the right decision either. So, talking about number forty-four. Uh, yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 I don't know. He seems pretty good now. Yeah, he does. He does. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not like he's infallible, but the, you know, product of the Chicago political machine, you gotta, you know, chew on that for a yeah, bit it's too. A fucking, it's the mafia. Yeah. Did um. I didn't, so wait, there's the picture of you that's like on your Twitter and stuff with all those records. That's actually in your apartment. Yeah, that's a lot of records. Yeah, how many pieces are in the collection? Uh, it's over five thousand LPs. Oh, okay, so. it's a lot. It's a lot. It's not like I mean I know people who are um, double that number. I just can't fit anymore. Are you having to get rid of stuff now to put new stuff in? Yeah, and I have stuff in a storage unit too. Do you have doubles of a lot of stuff? Uh, I try to weed out doubles yeah. pretty quickly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, but it's all pretty tight. I mean, it's yeah. I mean, it's it's um, significant amount of you know uh, modern jazz and free improvisation and and so forth. I also have a lot of uh, contemporary composers' works from the twentieth century, mostly um, a lot of psych, a lot of yeah. Uh, a lot of ethnographic field recordings and traditional musics from all over the world. Yeah. Stuff like that. Punk rock. I just got rid of like 500 CDs. I never got into the, I mean, I have a couple hundred LPs, but I never right. listened to them. Right. Um, and the, the sort of the criteria of what I got rid of was two things. One, like shitty things that people gave me on tour that like, that yeah. I, I'm just never going to listen to. Yeah. And the stuff that is like so commercially available that like I don't need to own a copy of. Right. You know, like Alice in Chains or... You right. know, Rolling Stone, stuff like that, where it's just yeah. like there's no need to actually own the physical thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, I, I call stuff. And then sometimes, I mean, I've only, I feel like I've re- maybe regretted dumping between five and 10 LPs in my life. Oh, really? Yeah. That's the, not bad. Yeah. No, I mean, I've sold many LPs in my life, but there are five or 10 that I regret. And they're not, not I mean, interestingly none of them are um in say the realm of jazz or improvised music like the records i regretted 
selling were a few hard, harder to find than I realized sort of post-punk and indie records. Uh, is that where you started as a, yeah. as, as a listener? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I mean, in high school, that was the music that really took off for me. Like SST or? Um, probably, yeah, Homestead, Sub Pop, that whole, I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, I started high school in 1991, the okay. year that punk broke, right? <laughs> so um, that was really my introduction to um really getting into music i mean when i was a kid i had um well you're uh-huh, good oh yeah when i had kids when when i had kids not yet uh-huh. um i have a cat though but when i was a kid uh i you know i listened to like hair metal sure. and like pop music whatever on cassette um and then you know some rap and hip-hop music um which i still you know, I still appreciate some of that music. I have, don't feel the need to own it, um, but it is—it's uh, part of the landscape of my listening. Sure. Um, but yeah, I got deeply into music, I guess, in high school. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I really loved like the sound of like dissonant clanging guitars and stuff like, like that. Like Kurt Cobain? Or? I mean, yes, but I feel like Sonic Youth was really like yeah. the, that was the, and Mud Honey and Green River yep. and like those kinds of bands. Yeah, yeah, those, yeah, yeah. Those, and yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff I've actually forgotten that if you probably named it, I would be like, oh yeah. Screaming Trees? Or... Yeah, for sure. I, I uh, wonder if, so you're talking about 1991, which is, you know, there's like a confluence of things happening. Like there are, these bands are actually getting some, if you're in Topeka, Kansas, you have access to this kind of music because you're getting massive exposure. Right. But also compact discs were really taking off and everyone right. was getting CD players. So for a young person with this, like a, uh, what, what do they call it when the parents used to give the kids money? Uh, allowance. An allowance. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, they still do sometimes give the kids money. Yeah. Uh, like you could start your own little world with, mm-hmm. you know, an interest in music and this newfound technology. That yeah. I remember. Yeah, no, it was. And I, you know, I I actually started buying cassettes and I didn't get a CD player of my own until about 1993 or four. I didn't get one until like 98. Oh, okay. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. So I, and I didn't get into L, I didn't get an LP, like a record player until sophomore year of college. Yeah. So to fall, well, summer of 1996 is when I got in. Why did you get a record player? Because you thought jazz sounded cooler with Crackle Crackle? No, no. um, My college roommate, um, my freshman year, had a record player. And he had some, you know, we were both listening to a lot of the sort of indie rock stuff of the period. And he had some stuff on LP. and that impressed me. I mean, my my parents had records, but I didn't really. Uh, and my dad is a musician. He's a pianist, mm-hmm. um, jazz pianist. So, um, but I didn't really, like, records weren't really part of my lexicon. The possibility that you could have this format, mm-hmm. um, this large format. And nobody I knew in high school or anything had them really mm-hmm. um or if they had them like parents records they didn't play them mm-hmm. so yeah so he turned me on to this as a pot as just a even a possibility that there was new music that i liked that was on lp and mm-hmm. i was fascinated by it um as well as on seven inch singles you know mm-hmm. um so yeah so that kind of took off and then i guess 
probably junior year of college. So we're talking like 1997 is when I um, figured out that jazz, I mean, my dad plays and played jazz and was a big, wasn't, is a big jazz fan. But um, when I figured out that there was something other in that, in the jazz realm, which was, you know, this music, free music, et cetera, um, with Albert Eiler being the really the 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 the, the door that opened the yeah, gate. Totally. Um, and so, but was Eiler the first guy that you heard like that, or was he- yeah, 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 yeah? I mean, I had heard, I had listened to um, a bit of Coltrane and Eric Dolphy at that point, um, like late Coltrane. Yes, yeah. late Coltrane um, expression around that yeah. time. I had listened to Out to Lunch. I liked those records. But um, when I heard Bells... Yeah. When I heard Bells on headphones I, at at the record store uh, in my college record... Or in my college town, that, that record store, um, that changed everything for me. Bells, like the burgundy version, the live recorded... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. This, yeah, this was... I think this was probably um, one of the ZYX CDs. Yeah. But, uh, and then I bought, uh, you know, a, a reissue of that LP and I bought, um, I think I bought spiritual unity around the same time uh-huh. and I got, yeah. And I got a fairly early, um, early, you know, original ish version of that record very quickly. And, um, yeah, and that was it. And then, you know, uh, so here I, we are. I were clicked immediately. <laughs> immediately. The, from the first few bars of really? bells i was hooked i mean it's yeah there was i i'd never heard anything like that before in my life yeah. and I, I whatever it was uh it really really captured my my attention but also my imagination i didn't know that music like that existed sure like there was no yeah there was no um, there was no frame of reference. I mean, I knew that the in- instruments were used in jazz, and I had been listening to some jazz, but a few things. But um, that was something else. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And you immediately went out to find more stuff that sounded like it. Yeah, yeah. And I was also, um, you know, I was lucky enough to be on the college radio station. You were, you had a show? Yeah. So I, you know, I had like a, first I had like a late night three to three to 6 a.m. rock slot, but I would fool around with that and play all kinds of weird noise things mm-hmm. like Breeze Gloss and whatever. So wait, this is like 97, you said? Yeah, 97, 98. And you were already a Sonic Youth fan? Y- yeah, from high school. Were you aware of what those guys were doing, bringing people like David Ware into their world? And I learned about and... that at that in college, I learned okay. about that. So in high school, I was not aware. I mean, I think I knew of Lee Ronaldo's um, poetry and uh storytelling and guitar things i because i had heard some of that and i liked it yeah it was i thought it was really cool it was unique i mean I, yeah. but i didn't know that there was a whole world of tons of other stuff like that yeah, 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 yeah you know because you go into the like i was reading um you know i think alternative press big takeover stuff like that i saw i read through those in high school and i mean i knew they, they give you i remember those magazines they give you a pretty good glimpse yeah, of, they do you yeah. know what's not center stage yeah yeah but i didn't know like i mean even though i had stuff on sst i didn't know about like you know 
Cruel Frederick or something, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. that, you know, the the Eiler cover band. Right. Uh, even though that would have been something I probably could have bought at the time. Sure. I mean, I would, didn't know about it till later. Yeah. It's funny. I always... Um... It's weird. I, I, I'm only thinking about this now that you say it. It's like, I feel like, you know, I, I have a, lot, a dismissive attitude towards lots of different music, mm-hmm. uh, not just any one music, but I feel like like a band, for instance, that I find like particularly like unimpressive would be like Grizzly Bear. It's a yeah, contemporary I, band that like seemingly people who are like, you know, are, are young and have good taste think you know, they hold in a pretty high regard. Mm-hmm. To me, there's this basic concept of like, if you're in a band like that and you don't also have another world of stuff that like is completely without debt to the corporate structure that allows right. that music to be huge, like you're, you're missing something. So like yeah. Sonic Youth doing that or like Brian and Nick from the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah is doing like all this cool other stuff. Like, right. If you're not doing all of that, like that's already an indication that what's happening like front and center isn't that interesting. Say more about that. I, I just mean like if you... When I think about bands that I love, plenty of bands that you know sell billions and billions of records, mm-hmm. um, then the music itself is fucking awesome. But like maybe not so coincidentally, those same bands, you know, like Beastie Boys, like those guys, like you know, like Adam Yauch, Mike Diamond, they do tons of shit outside of Beastie Boys mm-hmm. that is like maybe not commercially viable, right? But aesthetically awesome. Yeah, yeah. You know, Sonic Youth, you know, doing like you know free improvised records, and, like <laughs> it's awesome, and yeah. they are in a fortunate position and they're not wasting it right by just you know right yeah i mean and and i think you know i mean sonic youth is no longer a band but um i think all of them have really paid it forward in different ways yeah so to the the music and the writers and the artists visual artists as well that they love and i think that's you know i mean that's inspiring uh you know um i think there's also a tendency among uh, our peers in improvised music in that in that world to both sort of uh, like pay lip service and want to kill the father in a way, you How know. You Just like I think that that some people get a little bit um, upset that somebody in a posi- in a you know financial position is sort of able to use that position to uh forward the the work or the careers of certain other artists Mm -hmm. and you know i think uh people if somebody's famous tend to sometimes not want to be associated with that for Mm -hmm. a variety of you know uh, reasons of authentication or Mm -hmm. whatever Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. um yeah i mean i'm i'm not uh i'm sort of peripheral to the um the world of makers uh, mm-hmm. of music, but uh, you know, I, I I I get that impetus. Yeah, it's a weird dynamic. Yeah, for you know, sure. There, there there there's a lot going on there. Yeah, but so so back to your radio show. Oh yeah. So you have true. the three a.m. to six a.m. slot, and you just discover Eiler. So you start mixing that stuff in with like the noise stuff that you'd. Yeah, yeah, and weird like and indie rock and whatever. I mean, I I always gravitated towards the noisier. Um, noisier end of that thing of that of that 
genre and i was really you know really into like slint and rodan and uh-huh. bands like that i mean that 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 music was really important to me and i i still really like a lot of it so yeah mixing all of these things in that uh i think that was a, i mean that was a really good time i was also going out to like lawrence kansas was a great place to see shows totally. in that like era. underground shows not like arenas yeah. though it's great shows yeah 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 no i mean and i i was friends with a lot of music rock musicians and stuff um and yeah there were a great bunch of like post hardcore bands and stuff yeah. like that it was cool did you were, were your friends in that community were they also sort of checking out the the esp stuff and the Islers? um a few yeah no i had a few friends who turned me on to a lot one of whom worked at the record store uh love garden in which is still active still there. yeah it's still there it moved <laughs> locations but it's still in lawrence but yeah he turned me on to tons of stuff um, cause he was already, he was uh, maybe, a, he's maybe two years older than me. Um, we're still friends and he, uh, he turned me on to all kinds of weird stuff and he had a huge record collection and, you know, I was able to see things like, you know, actuals and stuff like that yeah. for the first time in college. And then, you know, seek those things out myself. Cause I didn't know, that, cause he had gone over to, to, France and Belgium already and like, like stocked up on that shit exactly when it was still cheap and um that didn't last long but uh yeah so I was able to you know follow that lead and seek things out and I think you know I was pretty aggressive about learning as much as possible you know, it's, you know I'm sorry, very just, fast you, you just made me think of something I hadn't thought about yeah. and like Jesus Christ, I'm getting on 20 years, which was the first time I went to Europe. I went to Eastern Europe, and I was the record store I hung out at at the time. I told the guy, Todd, who owned the place, I was like, hey, I'm going to be in um, Prague. Do you need me to bring you anything? And he writes down a piece of paper, plastic people of the universe, and he goes, "Take, I'll take everything you can get. And mm-hmm. he gave it to me. And so I was like in Prague. I was at a record store. I saw it. So I grabbed like, you know, 20 things. They were literally like three bucks each. Right. I came back. I was like, here you go, man. Like you owe me, you know, like 60 bucks or whatever. And I go back to the record store the next day, and each one of them has a price tag on it of like thirty nine ninety nine. Of course, of course, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean that's that. Yeah, the 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 economy of collecting records is pretty. Uh, but that shit's sick. over now, right? Like, if you want to hear Plastic People of the Universe, like you don't need to jump through any hoops. No, no. Um, I don't know. There's a difference between the object and the music. Though, of course, of course. So. I mean, I still, I could go listen to a lot of things on YouTube and, you know, that's, that doesn't really, that's separate. I mean, that's, that's like research for me, but that's separate from actually encountering the object. Yeah. Yeah. So, but that doesn't, but there is the democrat, the democratization of it in so far as you, if you don't have the, you know, time, space, money etc to you know go whole hog and it's you know it's completely it is accessible you can hear everything not everything but you can hear a significant amount of work Uh you know um for free yeah so when did you first start writing about music uh i was hoping you're gonna ask that yeah yeah, Yeah. (laughs) uh i mean i started so like as an undergraduate i tried to incorporate um, writing about improvised music, uh, into, of um, like class papers and projects pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, and actually my friend who I'd been roommates with in 
Montana, uh, he started a zine called Dye. D-Y-E, Dye. (laughs) So there's red dye, there's blue dye. I think it stopped after blue dye. That's Um, a cool concept. Yeah. So, um, and he had gone to St. John's College in um, Santa Fe. So I was writing reviews of things I bought for him, and I'd forgotten that until recently, that I was writing about, like, you know, like a Juno 44 record or whatever, shellac record Uh there. I mean, I think he probably printed, like... 15 copies and nobody saw it sure it was a good experiment good exercise um but yeah i mean i and in call in graduate school i mean i my first graduate degree was in art history so i was writing at that time that's when i first really started getting into it because i um my master's thesis was on free music and process art Mm-hmm. So, like the art of Richard Serra, or Robert Morris, late sixties um, post minimal artists in in New York in America. Um, I was at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and mm-hmm. John Corbett was. Right. I I already had known of his uh, his work, but he was an he was a reader on my thesis, and so I interviewed. Peter Brutzman for my thesis. Did he, Corbett put you in touch with him? Yeah. So yeah. Brutzman was in town. He was in town a lot then. Um, and so I spent time with Brutzman and interviewed him. And um, a little side note or a little jag is that I got I got to know Andre Hankin. Mm-hmm. Um, From uh, New York City Jazz Record. Yeah, I got to know him. I was actually um, interning at the Museum of, Mar- of Modern Art in for period of time in between undergrad and my first graduate degree so i was here Mm -hmm. um and i'd gotten to know andre uh this was before he'd started the paper so he started he and lawrence started the paper um which at that time was all about jazz new york and then later became the new york jazz city jazz record um so i had told him that i'd interviewed brutzman for my thesis and he was like well can we print it yeah. And I was like, sure. Print the thesis. No, not the thesis. Right. Uh, print the interview. Yeah. The thesis is, is some is in the hall in the halls of the uh, School of the Art Institute of Chicago Library. Really? What What was the topic of the thesis? Uh, is free improvisation as process art. It was called the Living Music after the uh, okay. Alexander von Schlieffenbach record. Okay. Um, so then you got asked to do reco- reviews. Yeah, and I yeah I got asked to do reviews um, and enjoyed doing those um and the rest is history that was 2002 okay so and you were but at that time you were living in chicago uh in chicago yeah and i'm then i moved to minneapolis but were you like there man in chicago like you were able to go and and go down to fred anderson's place and it was pretty it was it was much more um yeah, I mean, it was a pretty slow start. It was sort of piecemeal because I, I was also in graduate school, so I was working on my thesis and I was extremely busy. Um, but I did go to Fred Anderson's place. I mean, I didn't really get to know a whole lot of musicians. Um, that was a really fertile time to be in Chicago. Was that was great. Right, that would have been right after Vandermark was given that the award. The yeah, MacArthur. MacArthur. Yeah, and Empty Bottle had their you know jazz nights. Yeah, and I did get uh, nearly kicked out 
for being too drunk and belligerent at one of those. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but I mean, Tortoise would have been going strong, and yeah. there's a lot happening in that yeah, kind yeah. Of crossover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I saw Tortoise in 19, first in 1996, uh-huh. and they were great. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean. Is Tortoise still a band? Yeah, they're different now. Okay. But they were really great in the first few years. I yeah. really lo- I really liked them a lot. I, I I'm not as uh, last time I saw them, I was not as intrigued um, by what they were doing. Jeff's out of the band now, right? If he is, that's first I've heard. Oh, then I, hey, I'm totally off base. Yeah, last yeah. time I saw them, he was there. Okay. Um, you know, I think you know Johnny Herndon is an amazing drummer. Uh-huh. Um, he's really grown a lot. I mean, the musicianship is certainly there. I think you know where they're where what direction they're headed in and what direction I am headed in has those have diverged. But sure. I have utmost respect for, for absolutely. Them. So yeah. yeah. So you were there. And you moved to Minneapolis for more school? No, I was um, dating somebody. It, it didn't uh, work out. We moved to Minneapolis. Then I was uh, dating somebody else, and <laughs> that, that didn't work out. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, I was. It was a. It was one of those sort of mid twenties dark periods where you don't really know what the hell you're doing. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and I mean, I was. I was also like drinking a lot at that at that time yeah. it was yeah it was it was it was a dark period drinking heavily in the cold yes exactly city of minneapolis but i yeah but i did meet some really great people there um and uh people in the, in in the music um and i was writing a lot because i didn't really have much in going in the way of writing job. reviews yeah and and doing tons of interviews so uh, was that something that you had seen for yourself before you started doing it? Like this no. as an interest? No, I mean it was an it was an interest. I loved music, but I didn't see myself. Were there were there jazz writers to whom you looked as being like these are the guys that I think do it well? Yeah, sure. I mean, I was looking at um, you know, I mean, I was reading Hentoff. Uh-huh. I was reading Valerie Wilmer. Um, I was. You, reading... I take it you read as serious as your life. Yes, yeah. many many times over. Um, the people I was reading were of a, of an older generation. Yeah. So, um, that's I, where that stuff really sort of like cemented itself as an y- important. Yes. I mean, it, criticism cemented itself, um, I think in a way post-war, post second world war. So there I was mean, actual criticism. Yeah. And I mean, I was reading, I mean, I was heavily into reading art criticism f- as a graduate student and, um, you know, reading Clement Greenberg, reading Michael Freed. I got very into Donald Judd as a critic. I mean, his his art I was, and to a certain extent still am into, but his writing his is amazing. His writing is amazing. Yeah. That's, yeah, I love his writing. He's, I, I mean, I feel like I'm painting with a broad stroke here, but, you know, when I read some art criticism, like, I, I have to, like, read the shit four and five times to even begin to understand what a sentence says. And well, with a lot of, like, modern jazz <laughs> reviews, I read them and I'm like fucking nine-year-old nephew could like read yeah. this and get it you know yeah 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 that's true um th- now that's it's like a high low thing but there is badly written uh overly complex art criticism which somebody yeah, like the... judd was able to get away from right, like the over complexity is like covering up for the fact that it's like vapid writing yes often, oh sure yeah often sometimes yes yeah um yeah there's i don't know i mean as far as writing about jazz, I mean, or this music, uh, you know, uh, the, I feel like, so what I started doing was, was reading people, um, who were, of you know, several generations removed uh-huh. from me. So like Litweiler, um, 
yeah, Wilmer, um, re- reading s- sleeve notes to LPs, um, just internalizing everything. But I was also reading Cadence um, and reading like Stuart Brumer. He's uh. he's a little bit older than we uh-huh. are, um, but uh, Michael Rosenstein, uh, Derek Taylor, uh-huh. um, all, yeah, yeah, and he's still active. He's with Dusted. Bill Mayer. Uh-huh. Um, he didn't write for Cadence, but he was writing for some, I think for some indie rock magazine I was reading, maybe. Uh-huh. Maybe Magnet? I'm not sure. Could be, yeah. I think he might have been writing for Magnet at one time. Yeah. So, He's good. I like Bill. Yeah, he is. Yeah. I, I I mean, I feel like similar to being a listener to this music or, or certainly being a practitioner, like the music, whether it's, you know, free improvised or jazz or, you know, any of this stuff, like you can't really write about it without having like a really good sense of context right. and trajectory for what you're writing about. Sure. I mean, you can't give a singular review. You can't review a Coltrane album as like just its own thing. Right. No, it's not possible. No. I mean, and, and, you know, through, um, th- through my academic study, I mean, there isn't, there's a, definitely a connection between my academic study and my interest in the music and mm-hmm. writing. I mean, it's all part of the same thing. Mm-hmm. So for me, um yeah uh, trying to contextualize was always the point um and i you know did radio i moved on to do jazz radio um both in lawrence and then uh at wnur in chicago yeah. for a bit um like in evanston right yeah yeah, yeah. so it, you know trying to give context to people f- who are he- maybe hearing this stuff for the first time because you can't you know, you can't assume that all of your listeners, readers, etc., are going to be, you know, your friends who have already, who or or colleagues who already know this stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would m- much rather r- would be way more interesting to reach people who don't know this music or who maybe are put off by it and you know lure them in. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there are also a lot of people who. You know, they just don't know it exists. That's you know. most people. Yeah. I mean, most people, yes. So I don't know that in writing about, you know, say, um, your new record or, you know, like Weasel Walter's new record, um, I think there is going to be an element of people who will be, say, reading that review Um or that text who are already familiar with it. But if, if, if by chance somebody, you know, is intrigued, um, in reading a well, you know, a well-written text that can accompany in some way the music, um, you know, that's, that's really helpful. That's, I think that's important. I, I, I think so. And I think something that I, as someone who like, you know, every so often goes through the process of like spending way too much time working on a piece of music, actualizing it into like a physical document and then beginning the process of reaching out to people to try and help me spread the word. Mm-hmm. Um, fuck, what was I going to say? I just like, completely lost my train of thought. Uh, oh, where I, where I find like myself getting frustrated and banging my head against the wall is maybe it's always been this way, but now it seems like more than ever, there isn't any place or multiple places where things can sit. Everything's so compartmentalized now that it's, it's not like when, cause I, I got into this kind of music, you know, shortly after you, mm-hmm. a couple of years younger. Um, 
where you would see reviews of you know free jazz noise rock um yeah. electroacoustic music and it was kind of safe to it was safer to assume that someone going to that place to find out about music would have some some version of of understanding of multiple stuff and how it kind of fits together right like you could it wouldn't be so crazy to see a review of like a Mertzbauer record next to a peter brotsman record no right despite the fact these guys come from totally different places right right yeah no and he had magazines like signal to noise um who i did write for and then the wire um we never return my calls. Uh, <laughs> yeah, me you know, either. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and those kinds of magazines uh, that really were very good at, at I think, painting a, uh, a, can- a canvas that was very wide and that this, these kinds of musics are, are complementary to one another, even if you don't necessarily, you don't have to like it all. Of course but, not. But to know that, that these things are occurring in your world is important. Yeah, it's funny jazz and, and, and I talk, I've talked about this with a lot of musicians who are older than me. People like from that original sort of like downtown, mm-hmm. you know, Studio Henry into Knitting Factory yeah, yeah, world, yeah. which is like jazz for a lot of these people. Yes, it's an important part um, of who they are musically and, and as listeners, uh, but it's been a place where they can get in in a way that, you know, like uh, someone like Anthony Coleman or Zorn, mm-hmm. like they were able to get onto jazz stages. Because right. that's the umbrella they were able to get under. Right. Um, but but it's just, an, you know, it's not, like, it, it's always been tricky because you're they don't fit so neatly into that world. Right. And I, that's still relevant. It's relevant to me. I can get my stuff written about in, you know, sort of like niche jazz publications much easier than I can other places. Right. Whereas they were maybe, um, I mean, I think of them as, well, there, there wasn't really to my knowledge, um, a dedicated new music um, and composition magazine or publication at that time that would have really been a good avenue for reviewing their work. Right. I mean, it seems like The Wire sort of like... It filled that niche yeah. eventually, eventually, but in... And it seems to have kind of gone away from it. Now. Yes, it has. Yeah. Um, but in um, 1981, I don't know who would have been i mean cadence was certainly covering right. those um those parachute records and right and so forth and wkcr has always sure. been sure you know open to to new york's exciting musicians to come yeah in. for sure yeah but yeah i don't you know i don't know i mean down i don't know whether downbeat was i mean i have some old downbeats uh not from that period earlier ones and i don't I don't think they were going too deep um, on that stuff. I mean, they reviewed like ESPs and so forth, um, but I think a lot of the super underground stuff was not being talked about. That's not really surprising, I guess. But. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I really... Uh, I've gotten reviews in Downbeats. Right. And that speaks more to the writers who push to get those reviews yeah. in there yeah um and i've wondered like what is this like how, how it's always been greatly appreciated by me but like what what does are people actually reading this and and, and right. thinking like oh that sounds unlike something that i am used to hearing or reading about? right i don't know i mean i read down when i get so i get downbeat um they've started sending it to me kind of randomly um and I had not read Downbeat really for a long, like, I would go buy old issues because I was curious about, say, like, there's an interview with 
Clifford Thornton from the 70s, who's one of my favorites um, from that generation, trumpeter and trombonist right. composer. Um, and so I would grab downbeats to read the cover story or like, you know, an Ornette Coleman article from the late 60s or something. But um, and the reviews would just sort of be added on. Um, like added content and it's it's cool to see what some of these old albums like what they were um, what kind of attention they were garnering if any um, so now I've, I've been getting it and it is more like you know it's like art forum it's like cosmopolitan it's like yeah. a, you know it's like a catalog with some with a few things stuck stuck in that are con like other content but there are like the whole middle section is devoted to selling something right and it's weird I mean, it's what it's always been. It's like, you know, just before The Village Voice died, the entirety of The Village Voice became the back pages of The right. Village Voice. Right. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. Like, it used to be a place where, yeah. like, interesting things could be found. Yeah, you know? for sure, for sure. Um, I, I, man. I, okay, so when you started writing and like, what, what was that, when you started doing stuff for multiple publications, did you mm -hmm. find yourself... Um, given enough like the amount of freedom like you could write about whatever you wanted to write about yes and no i mean i was a i've been assigned i was assigned a lot i mean like so the new york city jazz record so i'm not i'm no longer writing for right. the new york city jazz record but um when i was writing for them uh they would send out because it's tied to who's who's gigging right. um that month you know as well as you know important historical releases birthdays uh death days etc sure so they would send out a list and i would pick from that list you know based on what i had already received um from labels or musicians as well as stuff i was interested in receiving mm -hmm. and when i was doing you know, interviews or articles that was usually tied to some sort of event, uh, sure. performance or what have you. It makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So um, with Paris Transatlantic, when I was writing for them, that was one of my favorites, by the that way. That was a good R one. R.I.P. That yeah. was a great magazine. Um, yeah, it was. I miss it. But um, I would just do whatever I wanted. Yeah. So... I mean, tied to, you know, things having recently been released. Right. That's all like that cycle is always part of it. But I would really just do whatever I wanted. Um, Bagatelle and when that was a going concern, same. Yeah. So. And both those places you just mentioned, Paris Transatlantic and Bagatelle, really kind of focused on like the hyper specific yeah practitioners of of free music yeah well and they also got really deep into the eai thing which uh -huh. um i still that's still a blind spot for me um insofar as there's a there's a massive amount of music in that realm um and i a, an awareness on my part that it exists, but I have not gone too deeply into it. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about it, but you know, it's it's not hasn't been become part of my lexicon really. But that was that was so that was a real big focus for both of them. So I was sometimes I was almost on the conservative side, sure, which is in an interesting place to be when you're talking about you know free music. I think it's yeah. I find myself being on it more and more. Yeah. So what, 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 what did that, was there, did you, you're saying you received some backlash? No, it, but there's a, there is an awareness that one is, um, maybe not, um, maybe on the slight periphery. Yeah. You know, of what the ultimate 
a focus or thrust of a given, especially because those publications were so collective in yeah. a lot of ways um, that it was kind of interesting to be sort of, uh, I don't know, like on the on the either waning or waxing side of this, this huh. visible sphere. Yeah. But that was okay. I mean, because I, it was still... Uh, I was still part of it definitely felt community uh, like a community and you can always be like the 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 like weirdo who's part of the community and maybe gets like is has one sort of one sort of area you occupy within that and totally but you're still part of it totally totally so I you know some other publications I've not felt that way um and I don't know whether that's like personal uh growth or shift or the way that uh music journalism or whatever it is we call this uh how that's changed i'm not sure um probably it, a bit of both it, it seems to when i think about crew I, I read there's two two i read music reviews and i read restaurant reviews mm -hmm. frequently mm -hmm. and just as like an example you know, Pete Wells, who's the current critic for The Times, I like Pete's writing a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, and I tend to agree uh, with most of what he has to say. Um, and one of the things I look at with Pete's writing, and again, I'm talking about food and I'm talking about restaurants, is that if you extracted, you could you could put together a collection of his writings, reviews, mm -hmm. going back, you know, 10 years or whatever, yeah. and however many years in the future, and I would buy it, and I think it would be, it would stand on its own as just great writing. Yeah. And, you know, certainly someone like Nat Hentoff was able to, his stuff went on to do that. Mm -hmm. Do people still focus on it like that with music writing? Mm, from the writing side? Yeah. Like, hey, I, I, I'm going to write, I'm going to make sure that as a level of quality control, this is stuff that could exist in perpetuity, not just, you know, 10 minutes from now. Right. I'm, I don't know. I mean... I sort of have threatened a few times to do something like that for myself if I, you know, if I get to that point. Yeah. Um, I've not done it. I've not made any real efforts other than trying to not delete too many files. Right. <laughs> I did have a hard drive crash, which really oh, stunk sucks. Uh, several years ago and lost uh, some some interview uh, audio, which Jeez. was only done digitally and not backed up on cassette, which is, you know, I, all the cassettes have survived, not all the digital only. Oh, have. Cool. Yeah. Um, so, but I don't know. Um, I've not really talked to anybody who's really trying to do that, that I know of, but I don't also, I mean, other than like Hank Steamer, I don't know too many, there aren't too many writers that I'm in regular touch with yeah and i don't really know what they're all doing what they're all up to yeah so i mean are you still writing regularly i'm i'm writing mostly liner notes right now um i'll probably i mean reviews i did get burnt fairly burnt out on doing that what what are some of the things that led to that burnout um i mean i think time uh -huh. being like being able to budget my time more um effectively um that's part of it i mean i have a full-time job so yeah. which is not in in music um right so and you know that's that takes up a lot of a lot of you know daytime mm -hmm. um i think too like when i was writing for the new york city jazz record I, there got to be a point where i was 
there, well, a there weren't. There's a shrinking of outlets mm-hmm. for sure to write. Um, I am not very good at being my own editor, mm-hmm. uh, so I am not sort of in a feeling in a position to just say, well, I'm just going to take what I do for these places, consolidate it, and have my own, you know, aggregated site or magazine or whatever. Um, I need somebody to, you know, kick my ass basically. Right. So, and I think a lot of people do. Um, so, but I got, I felt like I had reached a place where, uh, a significant amount of work that I was experiencing, uh, both live and on record, it wasn't really pushing my buttons. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was feeling, uh, sort of a, a, a middle ground being reached that I wasn't, um, as an experiencer that I wasn't particularly interested in with what was coming from the speakers and the stage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the, and I was also being invited to do things that were more historical in nature. Um, and you know, which I, I tend to sort of go in, in phases, like I'll be really, um, keyed into a lot of historical material and, and, focusing on that for a while and then I'll sort of shift towards a little bit more contemporary and what's, you know, what is happening now. Um, because that is vital of course, Mm -hmm. but it goes in, you know, it's hard to do both at once. Mm -hmm. Um, and I had dedicated myself, um, to a project with the, uh, multi-instrumentalist Phil Musra. Um, Mm -hmm. and he, he lives out in California, but he was, uh, a young student of the AACM in the late 60s and was then moved to Boston um, and with his twin brother, Michael Cosmic. And they started um, doing things in the early 70s in the underground there. Um, and I got, I got to know Phil very well. Um, I had thought he had departed, actually, the earth. Uh-huh. Uh, I had the, the records. They're very hard to find LPs. Um, and was posting something on an internet message board about, you know, just the fact, I think just the fact that I was listening to that, his record. Um, and he found me, found like Googling himself mm-hmm. uh, and uh, messaged me. He's not really a, a, an internet user, but he messaged me his phone number. I am Phil Musra. Here is my phone number. So I called him. This was years ago. Um and we talked and, and, you know, his brother had passed away and, um, he was still, he was busking out in LA on the streets and, you know, um, really trying to make things work for some new music. Um, and so we got to be friends and I had, uh, been trying to help him find some avenues for reissuing the old recordings, which he, they were privately released. So, I mean, he had the rights to yeah. do his own music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there were a lot of dead ends and, and I, um, got in contact, uh, with, uh, Ethan Alpat, uh, or Egon. Who's that? Works with Madlib. Okay. Uh, yeah. Runs now again. Okay. Um, and he had issued something that Phil and Michael were sidemen on. Um, and I made sure that, because I knew Phil didn't have a copy, right. that Egon could send him a copy of that reissue. And then Egon 
and I were talking and Egon was like, well, do you think uh, he'd be interested in reissuing some of his music and Michael Cosmic's music? And Phil was also at the same time saying, huh, I wonder if Egon would want to now again would want to reissue my music because we just, you know, not been able to find anybody. Right. Um, and so they were both asking the same question. So I was just like, you guys got to meet. We got to do this. Mm-hmm. And so that became, you know, I, I co-produced the reissue, um, did a lot of historical research, spent time with Phil, um, found the uh, master tapes, which were not in Phil's possession of Whoa. his own record. Whoa. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, and which were actually here, a bookstore owner had got them in like an auction or something. I don't really know the whole story, but I ferreted that out. So that like being that deeply involved with a historical reissue project uh, took me a bit away from things that were occurring. I mean, that's right now. Just to me, that seems like a more satisfying project. <laughs> that's something uh, I'd rather it, be involved yeah. with. Yeah, I mean, it was better for me, um, and I'm still involved with it insofar as I still. Has it come out? Yeah, it's yeah. out. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Phil, Phil Misra and Michael Cosmic. Um, yeah, it's still it's it's out. It's a two LP, two CD set. Um, Is that something you want to do more of? Yeah, sort of I mean, excavating and and reissuing. Yeah, some? yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if the if the project is right, um, yeah, I I really like being involved. So I, it would have to. I mean, this came together very organically because I got to be you know, friends with Phil. Yeah. So, um, I always liked the records a lot. So, I mean, it was really perfect environment. But when, when you're looking at a project like that, like what are the things that you're hoping to address as someone involved in the, the representation of it? Yeah. I mean, getting it, getting that music, uh, in front of people again and in front of people who wouldn't, who may not be aware of it. Mm-hmm. Which is hard because, you know, now I was on the other side, like having to do the work of getting it in the hands of potential reviewers, you know, people right. like me. So whether they would want to engage this, this work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's certainly work that they have, you know, most people in the jazz press um, had not heard of Phil Misra or Michael Cosmic. Right. So... Um, you know, but doesn't it seem like this is an opportunity to correct that oversight? That, that exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you can't expect people to have heard of something that came out in like 300 copies in 1974. Sure, sure. But, you know, it's like there is this idea in, you know, creative music, which, you know, the fact that I'm already using that expression gives you some idea where I'm going, that this music is frequently and unfairly maligned. Mm -hmm. And when you have something like this, you can say, hey, we made the mistake. The mistake was made the first time that this was overlooked. Right. And let's, let's, let's correct that. Uh, do people heed that call? Did you find? Um, th- you know, there were people, I mean, people did write about it. Yeah. I mean, it got a review in Downbeat, and I'm pretty sure it did not get reviewed in Downbeat in the 70s. Uh, right. In fact, I can, as far as we know, it was not like, right. reviewed really right. much. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, I'm so close to the project. Of course, I want everybody to love it you right. know not everybody is going to but but also just the did you do a lot of work with with 
um, bringing the artwork and the the fidelity fidelity of the record up to date. Yeah, I mean, I I took it. I took the tapes to get remastered by somebody who'd mostly worked with like classical uh-huh. recordings. She did a great job. Yeah. Um. And yeah, I mean, I was. I know, like Phil lives out in L.A. I'm here. Uh, Egon is out in L.A. So they were able to work a bit towards getting some archival material from like paper files from from Phil's uh, boxes, mm-hmm. uh, you know, scanned and reprinted and so forth. And yeah, but I mean, I advised on all that and like doing the sort of the paste on sleeve to sort of replicate the original and all yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So. But uh, I don't know how to like. Do you, are you going to actively pursue more of this kind of stuff? Yeah, I mean, I I will. It just has to be again the right the right, the, thing. R- the right thing. I have to. It has to be something that you know that I want to see reissued. Um, yeah. That I really like per, on a personal level, um, combined with finding somebody who um, is able to, because I, you know, I'm not in a financial pos- right. position to undertake the production of, uh, you know, records, but uh, maybe someday I will be. But finding somebody to to work with who is in that position uh, is is ideal. A label, yeah. you know, so. You know, I, I mean, independent contractor here. So <laughs> it's, I, I don't want to sound like a jerk. I just feel like I see money being spent all over the place that I feel like could go towards projects like that. that yeah. Would be, I, I think perhaps better spent. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. No. And, and a lot of it is also like, I mean, we're at a point now where people who produced a lot of that music in the 60s and 70s and 80s are, you know, um, they're no no longer around, uh, mm-hmm. or they're n- not long for this world, mm-hmm. um, and so time is of the essence. Mm-hmm. Um, also, doing it right. I mean, you know, there are some people that are impossible to find, well, that's whether or not they are still alive. Right. <laughs> we like some of these very uh, obscure artists who have made maybe made one recording and disappeared. Um, as great as that recording may be, I mean, what do you do? Do you, you know, if you reissue it, do you hold it in escrow? Do you, um, right. how do you, if you don't have any heirs or, or right. it's like, what do you, because you want to do it right. You know, I mean, I know people who bootleg stuff. It's not, not great, but sometimes right. it's also the, the means to get that music heard. So, right. Right. It's it's tough, um, yeah. and there are certain situations where the artist doesn't realize that they don't own the rights anymore, which really stinks. And the and the the um, the rights holder is probably some sort of conglomerate that has bought up you know catalogs just and it's just investment. sitting in a desk drawer somewhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean that right. happened with Charlie Nothing, um, the saxophonist and inventor. You know, a friend of mine was trying to. Uh, properly reissue his music on on uh, his label, which was called De Style. Um, Charlie had recorded for Tacoma, and Tacoma was bought by Concord, Fantasy, and then Concord. Um, it was John Fahey and uh-huh. uh, uh, in part John Fahey's label, um, and so you know Concord had the the masters 
supposedly, but they just were not interested in licensing it because they just don't care. Um, so it had to, you know, had to come out another way. Yeah. Um, and I can think of, you know, a number of, number of other situations where, you know, large labels, they like EMI, you know, I mean, they have, there are so many weird records. They don't give a fuck. Yeah, no. And there's so many weird records that came out on EMI. Right. Um, back, back in the day that, um, or labels that were bought by EMI. I'm, you know, they, they're, they're, whoever their archivist is, um, you know, as well as their legal team, uh, they don't care. Right. It's just, it's, it would be a, a, a huge headache for a minor thing in their eyes. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I would love the Gunnar Lindqvist on, uh, sweet EMI Odeon Sweden. That was something that Corbett, I think had tried to reissue, um, but it's a really great Swedish free jazz record. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, EMI just won't, re- won't release it. They, I mean, they may not even have the tapes. They don't, they're not even going to look. So, you know, fuck yeah, there, but there are many situations like this. It's, these are just two of sure. And, and going forward, like where, where do you see your writing coming out? Um, I mean, I'm interested in, I mean, I'm still doing liner notes. Um, so I just, um, put to bed some, uh, Sun Ra notes. I did something also for the tubaist Ben Stapp. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but I, I mean, I do see reviews as not completely impossible. I just have to figure out a situation that is, you know, amenable. Yeah basically yeah and i mean a lot of this is liner notes also pay yeah uh a lot of things a lot of reviews and things like that um the new york city jazz record was good about that but most other magazines do not right so i mean it's like it's it's work it's work it's work so yeah yeah and if you want it to be good you're gonna have to ask the person to be a well-considered listener yeah 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 so um yeah and Doing things for free is, I mean, we all do a lot of things for free in this yeah. economy. I know you do too. You're sitting here now. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, yeah. it's, you know, it being in a situation that is, that is at least somewhat compensated is very encouraging. It certainly is. I mean, yeah. and we, and I, I, I personally feel like a sense of what's the word? It's not frustration and it's not longing, but like a desire to have good writing around what's happening musically yeah no and i you, you know, know or just any form of media that is like is plugged in and serious about it yeah for sure no and i yeah i i and trying to engage people on that level like it's kind of funny because i accidentally prepared for this by getting blocked by uh ethan iverson on twitter you, yesterday really? <laughs> because and this is this totally ties in because he had brought up um a review uh of Larry, do you know Larry Cart? I saw something. Like he reviewed a Herbie record unfavorably. Okay, yeah, exactly. Yeah. In 1968, which was a long time ago. Yeah, but this was this sort of, and I know Larry um, through the magic of the internet. We've, okay. talked, I mean, he's one of the most knowledgeable people about the music that I've encountered. So, um, and he's not really well known as a, I think, as a, a critic. Um, okay. Or he, I think he should be better known, okay. probably. Um, but anyway, so I I trust his ear, even you know even if he wrote it when he was much younger. 
And so, uh, you know, this was posted on, on, on Twitter. And so I, I sort of said something pithy that I, you know, I agreed. I know Larry, um, cause the, the, the thrust of the original, um, statement put out was that it, like the guy has 10 years and blah, blah, blah. Um, and, uh, I actually can't see it now cause I've been, I've been blocked. I can't go back okay. and research <laughs> the original, but, um, and it was, it was a bummer because I trusted, and this happens a lot um, to critics of the music that, you know, um, I think people, musicians especially, but not only musicians, there are a lot of musicians who really don't like critics, right. which I find um, quite funny considering the the lack of negative criticism um, of works of art right. at this time yeah like critics are are now in a position where they are really kind of yeah they're i i don't i'm not, not really sure the right word to use and i mean i you know i definitely felt the pressure whether internal or external probably both to be more positive than sometimes i felt mm-hmm. so uh, I think critics are definitely in in the position where they have to sort of uh, uh, feel like their their lives are on the line if they, you know and that they have to be positive mm-hmm. uh, and be supportive. But uh, that was less the case decades ago. So anyway, the, it was a two star review of "Speak Like a Child," which is a record that has never really moved me particularly mm-hmm. either. So I agreed. Um, with with the original review and it it um it became a really explosive thread um you guys just going back and forth arguing yeah the, well the- and i was trying to be reasonable um in my agreement and i mean it's obvious that um you know by my uh well part of the review was was sort of um was so Cecil was mentioned in the review Mm -hmm. as being uh Cecil Taylor as being uh you know at that time one of the more significant direction positors uh in the music uh in terms of piano so and that that um the Herbie record especially since Cecil had already recorded for Blue Note um that 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 what Herbie was doing was I think you know being seen as as somewhat limited given Herbie's work already sure and these other directions as well that it was sort of a retreat mm-hmm. um, and there was also a McCoy Tyner record being reviewed which I think was reviewed more favorably um, so you know there was this whole dust up about you know um, like Cecil being the dividing line for pianists when uh, it, he was irrelevant to the discussion. Mm-hmm. I sort of forget because, as I said, I can't, having been uh, blocked, I right. can't actually go back and read the tweets to, you know, see what they said. But, you know, um, my support of, of of the avant-garde became an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and also that my, my agreement with the... Uh, assessment of the Herbie record um you know i mean the guy can't is is allowed to make a bad record i mean i think he's made more than more than more than than enough for everybody yeah um but and sort of that that um 
it got into a sort of a thing about like what swing was and whether you know whether swing was being discounted and mm-hmm. and that if that if you if you just want to swing that's one thing um that anything that was uh avant-garde was sort of a, anathema to that um and that there wasn't really a middle ground um i'm sure i'm forgetting some things in the in the whole discussion but you know that criti- that basically that critics don't know what they're talking about was was also a big part of it mm-hmm. um and it was just a drag you know um and also, you know, I mean, as somebody who's very committed to, you know, free music, and I've, that's not to say I've, you know, I'm always going to be a Cecil Taylor apologist. Not right. everything he's done has really um, been uh, something I've been into. Um, and I actually, you know, it's funny because, like, towards the end of Cecil's life and, and that, you know, he had that Whitney retrospective, yeah. and I was in a position where, um, I was called out socially um, for thinking that it sucked. Really? <laughs> that a lot of it sucked. And I think a lot of it was not so great. Um, but there were also some great things. So what are you going to, I mean, and he's gone now anyway. So, right. uh, and it's, yeah. So it was kind of ironic, like f- for me to be in a sort of the, the Cecil defending position when I have been in a not defending Cecil enough position, right? Like a, a year or two prior, you know, uh-huh. but you know, it's, um, it was, yeah, it was very weird to be sort of, um, in this landscape of sort of arguing for the, the, the soul of a thing. Um, you know, this being like, this music, um, uh-huh. in a, in, in a social context. Uh, and I think that the, you know, the, the critics role, um, on social, on, on social media is also sort of outsized, um, what their, what the critics role in actually, you know, writing, uh, extensive text, you know, is, I, I agree. It's, it's, it's tricky. And I don't know. I mean, Yeah. I just actually, out of boredom, I was at the dry cleaner right before you came over, yeah. and I was waiting on my thing. That's what you do when you're bored. You go to the dry but cleaner. I went to Twitter, yeah. and I just put up some snarky thing about um, uh, Kamasi Washington. Oh, okay. And I put it up with no consequence. Right. And that's the difference between a musician and a critic, is that like no one's going to hold me to fucking... Right. No one's going to take me to task on that. No one. Yeah, I've been asked about Kamasi Washington a few times. Yeah. You know, it's he can do his thing. It's not for me, but, you know, it's, right. I think he, you know, somebody like that. Well, say what you said, because I haven't looked at your... Uh, no, I just, I wrote... Let's and, read tweets on the air. Okay, I'll read a tweet. <laughs> and this is, you know, this is absolutely true. And, you know, as someone who has, like, a day job or, like, people are just trying to make people, like, my wife's friends or non-musician friends, you know, well, here's a tweet. The frequency with which I have to politely explain to non-musician friends and coworkers that no, I don't find Kamasi Washington's music very interesting, period, or good, period, or listenable, period. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just you know kind of a joke, but it's like it is true. You know, yeah, that I, I find myself in that position of like having to politely and not seem like a dick when I explain that no, it's just like I've heard this done infinitely better, yeah. you know, with more clarity, sure. and it came out fifty years ago. So yeah, no, absolutely. I don't absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, and that's, I mean, that's, that's a pretty, 
normal sounding position yeah. to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the position I would take too. So anyway. were I asked, I don't think anybody really cares about my opinion about Kamasi Washington. So, <laughs> Nor am I. So, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. It's weird. It's like I have, I am reminded of that. And this whole thing came up because last week I was at a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And my favorite things by Coltrane came on. Mm-hmm. Me and my friend were like, oh, thanks. Yeah, this is amazing. Yeah. And like 30 seconds in, it stopped. And we were both like, what the fuck? Who stopped that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they put on Kamasi Washington. And I saw the guy working. Put it, I was like, hey, man, come here for a second. I was like, why did you just turn off Bob Dylan to put on Jacob Dylan? You know, yeah. Or, or no, yeah, I, I said, yeah, why yeah. did you why did you put on why did you take off Bob Dylan to put on Jason Mraz? Is what I yeah. Said. That would be yeah yeah um, yeah. The other way would have been would have been yeah. yeah. Uh, and we kind of had this funny back and forth and and but but and and then I was like, oh right, you don't really give a shit about this right. stuff like I do. So like I'm taking this way <laughs> yeah, more, yeah, yeah like sense more 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 personally than I should. Yeah 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 yeah. No, that's true. And I I mean it's you know I don't know that. I mean, there's such a wide gulf between Coltrane and Kamasai Washington. You know, it's not even really... There's a wide gulf between Coltrane and everything. Yeah. Well, that's true. That's true. And which is in itself a problem. It's a problem? I mean, insofar as, um, I mean, figures like like Coltrane or Miles Davis um, are sort of outsized in terms of... I mean, they accomplished so much, but yet... Uh, they 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 go beyond the art in a sense that they're they're sort of these um, godhead figures yeah and that's you know when people think of of jazz or if they think about it at all it will be you know a very narrow sector of that universe sure um, and there's and you know I mean it's certainly uh, sensible considering the 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 quality of the work that they made but mm-hmm. you know there's a there's a whole lot of in between that gets you know, a whole left lot of out. in between and you know like all the musicians i know myself included kind of have this understanding that here are these pillars mm-hmm. and to even begin to situate yourself beside one of these pillars requires several layers of understanding right. one of which is you will never be this pillar right you know so what are you going to do with that and then right. in my opinion maybe I'm, this will be upsetting to some people you know it's like that's why i think someone like peter evans is you know like who's who's who are the next people that are really genuinely Carrying forward that legacy of someone like Miles is to me is someone like Peter, right? Where the music is so fucking bizarre, uh, yeah, and you know, oftentimes has very little to do with the the pillar, right? But th- therefore, it's it it fits that place, you know, right? Right. Had right. it been as closely related to it as some would say, Winton, then already the plus is a lot, you know, yeah. the plot is lost. The plus is lot. The like plus is lot. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I and and I mean, you're also in a position where if you put a horn in your mouth, you are, you know, to the greater public and even the critical public, uh, sometimes compared like, oh, he's a he or she is a Coltrane disciple. And it's like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> they're they're playing with strength and you, clarity. <laughs> yeah, or they, they or sometimes it's just that they have a tenor saxophone and they're putting it in their mouths and they make a you know maybe sort of a have a hard tone at yeah. some, but like, you know, it doesn't really necessarily like the, the, the comparison usually ends pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sorry that thing happened with Ethan. Yeah. I just want to, yeah. I mean, it was kind of, it was interesting. It made me actually, at least it made me sort of feel like I was part of the discourse again to get shut down. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> so, well, that's not bad. Yeah. Not retired yet. Yeah. Thanks for coming over, man. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Clifford. All right. I hope that you guys dug that. That was Clifford Allen. Uh, he's a good dude. I like I like him. I always like running into him. And, um, you know, I appreciate the work that he's done. I appreciate, you know, he's said a lot of nice things about my records. And when I've read his reviews, I have felt like, oh, this guy gets it. So uh, speaking of records and Clifford's involvement, check the record out that's playing just behind me. It's by Michael Cosmic. It's called Peace in the World. Go to Now Again Records to check it out. And um, if you're around, like I said, this Wednesday, you're in Paris, you're near Paris, come to Le Vincelet. It's going to be a special show, and I'm excited to play it for you. Um, next week on the show, ooh, I got a good one for you. I hope you guys like good conversations, because next week's, like I said, ooh, it's going to be good. That's it. Hope you guys are all doing well. Talk to you soon. Bye.